the theme for the evening talk is the threefold training. In the talk this evening, I would like to explore with you the deeper uh, levels of what is referred to in the tradition as the threefold training. And any dharma, any spirituality worth its uh, salt has to unambiguously address the areas of uh, ethics, of uh, samadhi, meditative awareness, and of wisdom. And in exploring these three, uh, three areas, there is the regular conventional interpretation. And this more or less goes along the lines of ethics is involved in the relationship of self to others. So that in that relationship, in that communication uh, with others, or in the fifth one, with oneself, one endeavors to engage with the world in a non-harmful, non-destructive way. So that there is the sense and the belief in self, there is the belief in uh, uh, other. One says of that meeting of self and others, just as I do not wish to be killed, robbed, or sexually abused, or lied to, whatever. So, therefore, I don't wish to do this to others. And obviously, it would be a significantly different world, extraordinarily, dramatically differently. If we just dumped all the religions and all the secularism, which is another religion, and just took notice of these five ethical guidelines and paid respect to them. They would have much more value for us as sentient beings and for other sentient beings than all the religion, philosophy, science and secularism because we could walk the streets with safety. We wouldn't be killing each other nor stealing or sexually violating each other etc. And then we say, in the everyday view of things, this is valuable, it's important. And then, because our mind isn't troubled with such acts of uh, violence and terror upon others or ourselves, this helps us to relax. It helps us to be more calm with ourselves. And from that, our mind can concentrate more easily, we can meditate more easily. And from that, we can come to further insight and wisdom. And there is some integration in our being of ethics, of samadhi, meditative awareness, and of uh, wisdom. 
and there's much which is of uh, value and usefulness to be said of that approach. But I think we can cut, explore a little bit uh, further, further than that. And I think sometimes in the looking uh, further, we've one of the important steps that we have to take is the willingness in life to see ways and means that we can take risks. I feel often deeply uh, concerned about the far extremes that we are going to in life to try to preserve some modicum of uh, security, comfort and uh, safety. And I think as far as the threefold training to liberate the spirit, this pursuit of safety, comfort and uh, security, rather than actually help us, actually ends up corrupting us, limiting us, inhibiting us. And we find that within ourselves, we start to move again and again in the rhythms and circles of our life in a kind of small circle, rather afraid and timid to break out of it. And I think once that happens, we still have a little bit of freedom, but the amount of freedom that we have is the amount of freedom that the Bajrigar has in its cage. And to give you one small example of what I mean, I've been teaching annually in dear old Mother India since uh, 1975. I go to Budgaya, it's places rotten, corrupt, violent, polluted. It's uh, the poorest state in uh, the whole subcontinent of uh, uh, India. And the violence in the area where we go, in the villages surrounding, is high as well. Generally speaking, on the retreats there over the years, until 9-11, around 20-25% of the participants in the retreats in the Thai monastery were from here, from the United States. After 9-11, there was a massive drop in the numbers. The numbers dropped down to about 5%. It's gradually crept up, as we look through the list, to about 8 to 10%. And a number of those people from uh, this country who go there have gone there regularly, previously, before. It's not as though he or she or they are first time. And I thought to myself, what a pity. What a pity for their awareness. What a pity for their lack of backbone. What a pity for the compromise. What a pity to read all this stuff in your newspapers and then the outcome of it is not feeling safe, not feeling any courage, not feeling any determination to get on a plane, not feeling any determination to go to India for spiritual purposes. The impact 
of one event having on a society and a whole nation and in Dharma circles to have such an impact as well as many other meetings, gatherings, uh, conferences, uh, festivals take, taking place and the citizens of this country far more than anywhere else were afraid afraid Phew. sad and that's what happens when we're attached that's what happens when we're uh, living in a, a kind of cocoon of wanting to feel safe and secure that's what happens when when we talk of freedom and actually don't have it. So we end up sadly living in the rhetoric of it, in the metaphysic of it. And so I receive, I remember, over the next year or so after 9-11, from people that I, people I know, people who have sat in front of me and have given teachings to, oh, Christopher, I don't think I'll go to India uh, uh, th this year. Um, doesn't feel... Uh, quite comfortable, doesn't feel the right time. Um, I think I'll go next year, I think I'll go in a couple of years. Oh, you wimps. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the kind of necessity, I think, of, uh, uh, that we need to uh, uh, look at. Is my consciousness as a human being who is deeply interested in liberation and not all this mumbo-jumbo that comes out of your leaders, then I'm going to have to go against the stream. I'm going to have to take risks. I'm going to have to say to myself, I'm not going to compromise and just try and live comfortably and, and, and safely. I'm going to live with some adventure and some spirit. I'm going to take the chances and I'll take the consequences of the chances. And unless that kind of force and that uh, passion is running through you, then you're dead. You're the budgerigard in the cage. Nice cage, nicely painted, a few little ornaments inside, and hopeless. I was reading a book. I like to read, I like reading books, I must say much better than writing the damn things. And the book was called The Buddha in the Jungle. And it was written, I think, from, by a citizen from this country. And it's basically an account of the monks from around 1850 or so in Thailand to about 1950, 1960, 70s, etc. Some of whom I'm blessed to have have known, some of whom I've been blessed to have uh, sat and uh, listened to their teachings, Hachan Tamataro, Hachan Patadasa, great radical, fresh, visionary forces uh, in, 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 in the Dharma. And in writing the review for some Buddhist publication, I forget the name, there was one account of the many which touched me. In fact, it reminded me, if I may say, of a period of when <coughs> I was uh, uh, in the cave. And 
One night, while uh, on the ledge, it was in the middle of the night, and there was some moonlight, I could just see a little bit, I could hear this sound, shh, shh, shh. And I was convinced that it was, for some reason, a, a villager who had come up through the coconut grove and up through the, uh, the woods up to the uh, cave where, where, where I was uh, staying on this uh, island off the coast of uh, Thailand. And so I uh, quietly uh, uh, opened my eyes, and there, swinging its lovely head right in front of me, was this two-meter-long uh, snake. And <coughs> incidentally, I, listening to this, the meta thing today, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Sylvia, this is a true story. I got a very bad, because of foolishness, I got a very bad snake bite when I was in uh, uh, Thailand and through hurrying across the rice paddy. It's a long story, I'll bore you with the details. And when uh, it happened, I remember that the thought arising in my, my mind, because I nearly went into coma, so the last thought of going was, I didn't expect to die today. I always remember that thought arising in the... Uh, uh, there. Anyway, I'm sti uh, still here, I think. And um, so is there on this... Uh, and, and then when I went back to the monastery, as soon as I mentioned snake bite, the first words that came out of their mouth, I remember the old monks, my me meta, he doesn't have any meta. <laughs> loved, I loved it. Because you, you don't get poison, you know, etc. Et and they're absolutely right, because I was hurrying across the rice paddies, instead of walking mindfully, and it was dark, Walked, went across this small stream, boop, and then whatever. So I'm sitting in the cave on the outside of the ledge of the cave, and the sn snake is swinging its head in uh, front, about or whatever, half a meter, meter away. It's amazing how good it is for concentration. <laughs> I, can, I can promise you, not a single thought about what I would get in my begging bowl tomorrow morning arose. <laughs> One pointed concentration of this relationship. Well, and I didn't know whether it was a rat snake, which is harmless and a couple of meters long, or the cobra. Can't tell really, especially in the dark, unless the cobra opens its hood. So here we are developing this close and intimate relationship. <laughs> And it's just a matter, small thing, not that there's any uh, choice about things which matter anyway. But it's just staying steady with it. And I had the reminder of this, I may say, while, I haven't thought about it for years, but while reading this book. And the book told an account of these travelling, wandering, mendicant monks and their relationship to the buffalo, the tigers and the snakes and the and the scorpions, and the villagers, etc. And in one of these events, the monk was standing in a river, up to his waist, taking a bath. And a crocodile glided towards him. And he just stood there, steady there, and the crocodile's head was right on his dear old belly button, pressing. And the monk 
started to do some <coughs> chanting. <coughs> and put his hands on the head of the, uh, the, the, the crocodile. So they have a even very close, intimate relationship. And I, when I was reading this, I, the thought arose, my God, if the crocodile opened its huge mouth, where would the bottom part of it be touching? Uh, <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Monks have no use for that area anyway. But, uh, but, but, but believe me, monks are connected to it. I know from experience. <laughs> so the monk just stands there doing his chant. And it's mantra, in fact. And a villager spots this going on. You can imagine, eyes wide open. Gradually, gradually, the crocodile loses interest. Monk slowly, slowly goes backwards and uh, out of the water because if he had got into fear, he would have fled. If he had fled, the crocodile would have taken his legs and then the rest of him. So the staying steady in the situation, not being in the fear, being present totally to it, in this case, was a life protector. So the villagers came out, they hear about this, this story because a, a villager has witnessed it. Of course they say, teach us the mantra. <laughs> the authority of the monk is incredibly strong when because he's giving teachings on metta, on loving-kindness. And the power of that is giving teachings on equanimity, the ability to stay completely steady in a situation. That kind of practice and that kind of uh, power of uh, heart and mind is important. Are we willing, metaphorically, to step in the river and be close to the crocodiles. Sometimes, when we look at this movement of, uh, of ethics, many will say, quite understandably, well, Christopher, on these matter of ethics, I don't kill, I don't steal, I don't rape, I'm uh, not lying, I'm not uh, abusing alcohol and drugs, etc. I lead an ethical life. And one could easily draw the conclusion, ah, I've got my ethics uh, together. But it would be a pity to superficial, make such a superficial interpretation uh, of them. Because they have the relationship to samadhi. They have a relationship to steadiness. And as one, one explorer, one English explorer pointed out with uh, uh, this and other stories uh, of the monks of kindness and uh, equanimity, of deep steadiness of, of being, he said, it reflects all the difference in the world between what we, referring to Westerners, what we would do and what, what, what we see and hear for ourselves. In the West, in the East, they will use these practices for these situations. The first tendency we have in the West, 
when we're under threat is to kill the damn thing. And that uncivilized, medieval, barbaric form of dealing with a problem has still not left our consciousness. It's still in there. We're still doing it. We haven't learned anything, and we have the extraordinary arrogance of claiming that we are the ones who know what life is all about. We are living in such a depth of fear and arrogance and self-delusion, and we can't see it. We can't see the brutalization that we are engaging in and giving lip service to. And so we try to dig deep. We try to question these uh, uh, react- reactive forces in our si- inside of ourselves to see and feel a different kind of uh, being in, within and without and c- to connect with that. When I walked across here this morning, Sylvia was uh, sitting here when I was give the instructions, you may not have heard, but she said, she, whis- she whispered to me, Christopher, you look like you're going to a wedding. <laughs> and it reminded me of something, as these things tend to do. I don't know how, it, how these things are for you, but... Um, my, my hat's off, I have to say, to anybody... You're married, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. To anybody who's got married. You know, talk about um, the monk going in the river with a crocodile. <laughs> I applaud those who have been so bold in life to take such steps as to put their thumbprint on a piece of paper and say, I do and I will. And so I've been very hesitant, but I have a little confession to make, a small one. I actually, not so long ago, proposed marriage to somebody. I was quite impressed with myself, I must admit. (laughs) Having spent the blessings of of a life living, well, I and see life is free as a bird. Whole life it's been uh, free as a bird. And so I've listened many, many times to uh, um, the marriages of others. No wonder I never got married. <laughs> and, um, but then I thought, well, we're into impermanence, aren't we? And um, <laughs> so there's a poem of Rumi whereby... Um, the falcon um, lands on, flies and then lands on the rock. So I use this as a basis for my marriage uh, proposal there. And I, I didn't send, it wasn't an email. I, I, I wrote it all by myself <laughs> and sent it off. So the good person, good lady, she said, I'll give you an answer in 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah. I've heard this 40 days and 40 nights somewhere before. 
etc. So the days and the weeks went by. I would have been more comfortable, in fact, if she had said 40 years and 40 nights. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, anyway. So anyway, the answer anyway, the answer was no. <laughs> to be absolutely frank, it was a bit of a relief. <laughs> but anyway, all right. So sometimes we look and we say, okay, I take a step, I take an initiative, I, uh, I explore something. The actuality of the expression of it is effects and results, as Krishna is always reminding us in the Gita, are not in our hands. Somehow, we as hu- human, human beings have to understand this. And I think particularly in life when we, in the matters of the heart and extending love to another, love with a person or, or in a situation or an environment or circumstances and one's given one's heart to it, him, her, whatever uh, it, it might be, that somehow or other the ethic of this is one keeps faith with the act of love This is the ethic. Even though the flow, the outcome, the result, or whatever which accompanies it, meaning what I would like to be, if that happens, and what I would like to be, and what actualizes itself, meet together, please regard it as a miracle. A rare miracle. Less common than people walking on water miracle. So that the act of the love is where the ethic actually is. And all too often the fear corrupts it. We're afraid. We're afraid to ask. We're afraid of each other. We're afraid to make the gestures. We're afraid to give. We're afraid to open up to. We're afraid to let the love flow. And this movement is the ethic. It's a deeper, not the deepest of ethics, but it's a very deep, deep ethic. And there are plenty of times, and Sylvia and I will have listened already just in the last day or two with a number of you, two situations where one feels oneself contracted, holding back, holding up from, afraid to make, whatever it is. And somehow or other, that imprisonment, that bird in the cage, yearning to be free, yearning to uh, express, has got to find the vehicles, the means, the instruments, the insights, the, the passion to move outside of the known and to let the spirit be free to let it move. <coughs> Dharma's all about that and that ethic, if it's grounded with us and if we're committed to it, it's not that we think, oh, I mustn't hurt anybody, I mustn't harm anybody. It's just that we don't have any interest in it. It's, it's not a, a, a struggle for us because the real, real ethic is in the focus. The real ethic is in the real priority that we give, that we're going to take risks, we're not going to live in safety, we're going to 
live and give, and we're going to make that a, a real priority. And sometimes we'll have to walk with the crocodiles. But it'd be worth it. I'm not one for, for uh, chanting and, and, and rituals. I've had, in 30 years on my retreats, 10 minutes of chanting. I probably wasn't feeling very well that day. <laughs> and the inspiration for it came from a woman who's done a number of uh, retreats with me in different parts of the world over the years. And she knows my poor, um, unexamined views about chanting and especially any long chanting, etc. <clears throat> I mean, apart from it being an endurance test, what I can never make out is, and I, I see this in, um, in Bodhgaya, where the monks, because Buddhism, as you know, it's a male system, where the monks are all sitting in front of the tree, thousands of them s sitting there, with these pieces of parchment and paper, chanting away all these words of the Buddha. And the thought that always arises in my mind when I uh, look at this is it's a little bit like buying a box of medicine and reading out loud the instructions on it for hour upon hour. <laughs> it might, might be, get, get, get into it. But, you know, it's a minority view. <laughs> so, I ha so sometimes one little communication helps to change the perception. And in this case, the uh, yogi, the uh, retreatant, she told me that, to use her own words, everything in her life was absolutely falling apart absolutely falling apart. The marriage fell apart, the job fell apart, she couldn't pay for the mortgage anymore, the uh, terrible trouble with her children, etc., etc. She got so stressed, she was sick, she felt suicidal, incredibly depressed, etc. She just didn't know what to do and all the practice and everything just all fell apart. And then suddenly, because of uh, retreats, not with Christopher, but because, because of uh, retreats, she's just doing, doing them, probably the chant which many of you have heard. Buddhang saranaṅga chami, dhammang saranaṅga chami, sangang saranaṅga chami. I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And she just kept chanting and chanting and chanting. And she said, it just got me through it. It got me through the most terrible nightmare of my life. I just kept on chanting till I slept. I woke up and I started chanting again. And it just got me through. Buddhang saranaṅga chāmi dhamang saranaṅga chāmi saṅgaṁ saranaṅga chāmi. And I listened to that and went, wow. Just 
Well, that's a different way of looking at it instead of a medicine box. And so for 10 minutes on the next retreat, we did some chanting. <laughs> Might be another 30 years before I hear another story. <laughs> Still here. All right. So sometimes, through our own experience, through our own concentration, through the application of something, it helps to change and transform the situation. That's the ethic. That's a very noble human ethic for you and I as men and women on the earth to be really committed to that. I live in um, South Devon and in uh, the town of Potness. And not far away, some 10 um, miles away, is an area which is called uh, Dartmoor. And it's a very um, lovely uh, spot and plenty of, nothing like you have in, uh, here in the United States, but plenty of remote uh, areas and tours and rocks and, uh, and just roaming, undulating, unfolding countryside uh, there. And one can just walk and walk for miles there. I had the privilege of many times. So a friend asked me if I would uh, go up there with her and she said that she wanted to make two commitments and she'd like the commitments that she made to be in some form of ritual. Oh, no. <laughs> Chanting and ritual. God. What do you think I left the Catholic Church for? Anyway, so, so I was feeling unusually compassionate on that day. And so we went up and found a remote spot with a rock. It was a lovely uh, day. And the two commitments that she wanted to make was, one, a lifelong commitment to truth, and the other, a lifelong commitment to serving others. So we engaged in the triple gem. So I spoke about the two uh, commitments for a few minutes and then for about half an hour I uh, questioned the good lady out on how deep this, these two commitments were because it's all too easy to oh, have oh such a nice thing to do one's feeling in a good mood, I'm ready for it and I just wanted to be convinced essentially that these commitments were really were strong, they really were deep, and she really had thought about it seriously before approaching me. And so, half an hour of questioning uh, on all of this, I felt the uh, trust and the confidence in these commitments, and she made these commitments. And I use it as a small, ex a small example, whereby it's another level another expression of uh, ethic, and part of that means that somewhere out of us needs to come some kind of vision. 
some kind of vision. And when the Buddha himself, enlightened under the tree, not only was there realization, which he referred to, but he also referred to darshan. Most of you know where the word has got corrupted by these guru wallers. But it actually means vision. To see things, to see things so clearly that the consciousness is truly aligned to the vision. And therefore, despite all the ups and downs and the waverings and the approvals and the disapprovals that go on with our existence, there's a quality of samadhi, that means a quality of concentrated attention, which keeps that vision in line. And no matter what goes on with our life, from all the ups and downs, health and sickness, I say praise and blame, non-parenting, parenting, parenting, married and divorce, and the whole catastrophe, but nothing shakes off the vision. And the vision helps enormously in life to put into perspective the sense of all these ups and downs. If we don't have it, the ups and downs will matter. We'll be thinking foolishly as human beings on Mother Earth that our ups and downs are important. They're completely unimportant. But we've built them up in such a way that they end up like this. Right, the hand in front of the face, we can't see anything but the ups and downs in my life. But there's vision. Then this is just passing, passing, passing through. And we could spend here some genuinely worthwhile time in our exploration, isn't it? Is, inwardly, is there a vision? Is there a vision? What is it? Can it be articulated? Do we have a sense of that kind of alignment with it? The Buddha's was very clear and very simple. There is suffering in this world and there is the resolution of it. That was the vision. From that, that influenced what came out of the heart, the mind, the body, the speech, the language, the communication, influenced by the vision. And as human beings, with our extraordinary potential for conscious life, we're selling ourselves short because we've lost the vision, or we haven't got a vision. And the outcome of that, we compromise. And when we compromise, we end up in the mundane, in the, and in the material world, and thinking having is what it's about. It's sometimes people come to me in their 60s, or more in the grey-haired club, balding club, or whatever you want to call it, and they say, I've just realized I've got everything that I want. I've got all the money that I need. I've got enough money to last me for lifetimes. But I've wasted my life. And I listen, and I listen, and I listen. And sometimes I'll say, you're right. You've wasted it. You blew it. But today is a good day for a new start.
The only one we got. So, okay. Last 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, okay, I agree. Total waste of time. <laughs> I mean it. No use being polite. It doesn't, doesn't help people. Except in California. <laughs> right, no, it's all right, all right. Bad joke. And so sometimes there is the ruthless ethic. And the ruthless ethic, again, is no past. All the waste of the past, to drop it. The ethic which says, I am not going to continue one day longer what is not worthwhile to continue. It's get the buck, to use one of your presidents, that hopeless crowd, <laughs> that the buck stops here. <laughs> and that, I don't sometimes I don't make jokes and people laugh. I'm never quite, <laughs> I know we're separated by a different language, but anyway. So sometimes in the sharpness of attention, it's an act of cutting off. It's not wasting or waiting around for donkey's years for something to finish and gradually exhaust itself, which is exhausting even talking about it. But one actually says, enough. This stops. No more. Finished. Complete. End. And the very act, and even taking all, I know, all the risks, oh, it might be suppressive. But just say no. Of course it might be suppressive. But it also might be liberating. That's the chance. But so much else is suppressed, what's a bit more anyway? <laughs> so sometimes we look and we give attention to. We observe the movement of all these practices that you and I are seriously engaged in. But sometimes the voice of wisdom and the voice of determination comes in and says... Enough. No more. Not a day longer with it. And that kind of uh, empowerment in the uh, inner life then generates some space and then generates some opportunity for something open up and to flower and the vision to come. But it can't come as long as the old shadows of the past keep flowing over to the present moment just like the clouds keep blocking out the sunlight. And therefore, in a way, sometimes we kind of have to make up our mind. Am I really interested in a free and liberated life? Or am I really interested in the maximization of uh, comfort? It's a test. It's a challenge for all of us. There's another aspect of this relationship of ethic to samadhi, that focused, steadfast attention that I referred to, and uh, uh, wisdom, which is also uh, important here. And that's certainly in the matter of what truth is, is all about. And I get, I hope you do too, I get a little bit concerned about truth from above, wherever the above might be, including... Sitting here, or Sid, Sid is behind us, Siddhartha. 
We're in good name terms, you know. <laughs> and wherever it comes from above, and, the, any, and any way that it's in, imposed from above, it gives me the feeling, I don't know what the feeling that you get, but it gives me the feeling that somehow truth is something like one's got it, whoever the one is, and then one knows what it is, and it's kind of held and there, and it's conceptualized, it's conceived of, and then it's going to go from there, whoever the one who's got it, to you ignorant lot. Who have no idea what it is, are going to come here, are going to get it, and then take it home <laughs> and give it to your spouses, even if they sensibly don't want it. So this, it's like it becomes a kind of constructed form going from here to there. And then one has these intermediaries called gurus and dharma teachers and uh, missionaries and priests and clergymen and scientists and philosophers and da, da, da. I think you and I need to liberate ourselves from this kind of view about truth and somehow or other have a sense of it in a, in a really fresh way. And one of the beautiful and active aspects of truth, rather than this passive view of we've got something going to give, is it actually is a direct engagement with life, which, as I mentioned a day or two ago, transforms it. It does something to it. And when it does something to it, it opens it up. And that's moments, those times and moments for you and I. It's like, one, don't know, one doesn't know like where it's come from or how it's happened. But something has affected the life, changed it, freed it up. And our attention and our receptivity and our practice is kind of keeping the consciousness available for that kind of injection of truth into our life. And as somebody said today, or yesterday in one of the groups, when we're touched in, some, in such a way, there is a genuine sense in the being of something authentic. It's not abstract, it's not theoretical. Something authentic, kind of enters into the arena of existence and the construct of it breaks open. This we call truth, truth, truth. When it's from up top going down, it's extraordinarily dangerous. Because then human beings find herself, themselves, kind of submitting to constructs of what truth is. And no bigger, I think, demonstration, in, certainly in continental European history and many other examples. When we were having our yatra in France in the foothills of the Pyrenees this summer, <coughs> it's in the region from the 13th century of where the Cathars live. The Cathars were a, a, a Christian uh, network. 
same word as catharsis. So when they'd had a transformative experience, they became a cathar. And their teaching, their core teaching was heaven and hell is within you. That the voice of God and truth comes through you. And therefore it was a shift away from the oppression and the tyranny of the church, the top down, to women and men actually listening within themselves to the truth within themselves. The Vatican, the Pope, could not tolerate this because it made the shift to the inner life and away from the outer. And the struggle of the inner life in a kind of painful and dualistic way which the Cathars struggled, struggled with. And then came one of the most infamous statements in uh, European history because the Pope rounded up a huge army to get rid of all the Cathars, some 30, 40,000 of them because people loved the connection with them, saw their kindness, saw their wisdom, saw their ethics, saw their goodness of heart, saw their metro. And people were attracted, they connected with them. And the Pope said, form this army to get rid of them all. And then the bishop, as the rep Pope's representative, the Bishop of Languedoc in the southeast France, the soldiers and the army went there and the Pope said to them, this is how bizarre and mad this world has been and still is, the Pope said to them, kill all the Cathars and if you kill them, you will be freed from all sins of past, present and future and all your debts to the Jews will be dissolved. This is a statement like this. His name was Pope Innocent, I mean. You know. <laughs> Truly. The soldiers went to the Bishop of Languedoc and said to him, but the Cathars don't dress any differently from anybody else. And the Bishop of Languedoc then uttered this merciless statement. He said in that area, kill them all. God knows his own and the rest will go to the devil. Sometimes in the madness that's gone on in our human realms of, 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 uh, of past and, and present, when authority builds itself up, 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 it has incredible arrogance of believing one knows what is good and believing what one knows what is right and what has to be done and that there is no choice. Just as you are being told every day now. Where does evil come from? Where does this violation of ethics come from? It doesn't come from be concerned with the past. You can have a lovely, good upbringing, nice parents, and all, all that. It doesn't come from there. It doesn't come from social conditions and all, all of that, all these influences. The manifestation of the utter lack of ethic, which we, which is uh, evil, comes from what? It comes from the identification with the belief in the good. 
Pope believed what he was doing was good and that it had to be done and there was no choice. And that's the same message we keep on getting. Evil springs from the good and the identification with it. And until, as men and women on the earth, we start challenging that and questioning that and, and looking at that, then we're trapped in it and the entrapment in it brings incredible suffering. When I was in Mother India, in the villages, in and around, in and around Budgaya, and I know the villages, I know, I've known some of, the, some of the adults in the village since they were babies now, as well as many others. And there was a huge outburst of deep sympathy for the events of 9-11 and, and subsequent. Deep sympathy. And in a few weeks, it had all gone. Why are they bombing? Why, the Americans, bombing poor people like ourselves in Afghanistan? I just use it as the external to see that from the Dharma perspective and exploration, ethic is not just about five precepts. It's an encouragement from the Buddha to really look at our entire relationship to life, our identification with the good, the destructiveness that easily emerges out of it because we sincerely uh, believe in it, the ethic of keeping our attention focused and finding a vision, the ethic of being true to what we see is true. Then ethics, samadhi and wisdom have a deep relationship with each other so deep is the relationship, it's the same thing. It's that deep. One who knows ethics knows wisdom, and one, as the Buddha said, and one who knows wisdom knows samadhi, and one who knows samadhi knows ethics. Then the threefold training dissolves into the same liberating substance. Our teachings and our practices and our contemplations and our work here together is to really liberate the heart and mind, as I said. To really take risks with our focus and with our love. And if one has said to oneself, I take steps as a human being, I take risks, and sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't work out, and sometimes I'm judged fairly and misjudged fairly, etc. And if one has said to oneself a small vow in life, I'll never feel sorry for myself. Never feel sorry for myself. And one just made that commitment, I will never feel sorry for myself, no matter what you'll never be a victim. You'll never feel you're a victim. You'll never feel anybody has the power over you to make you a victim. And therefore you'll always feel empowered because one doesn't feel sorry for oneself, no matter what. And there's a certain dignity and integrity and, and something in accordance with the, uh, the, the Dharma of awareness and, uh, and liberation. You know, and the deepest being will and can respond to these. 
can respond to these awarenesses and to these insights and to these commitments and to these dedications. So you'll all be booking a flight to India in the next few days. And um, thank you very much. Okay, let's have a couple of quiet minutes. May all beings be true to ethics. May all beings stay true to samadhi. May all beings stay true to liberating wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.